Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 124 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Thursday, June 13th, 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, you pulled a Ron Swanson. <laughs> who's Ron Swanson? Ron, who's, who's Ron Swanson? Who's Ron oh, Swanson? Oh, no. Oh, wait. Is that episode title already? Who's Ron Swanson? Well, it depends. Question who, mark. So who is Ron Swanson? That might Swanson? be our all-time record for, for episode title. <laughs> I'm still wondering. Ron Swanson is one of the major characters in Parks and Recreation. Okay, so I have not watched Parks and Rec. Oh, oh Bobby. Oh, Bobby. Come on. <laughs> Um, well, we know what your next show is going to be after Westworld. Okay. Um, although I'm, I am pleased to hear about your, your catching up on Westworld. Yes, soon I'll be in position to talk about it. We're halfway so, through so, season two. So, you know, I, I think uh, listeners coming down the pike, um, maybe in about a month or so, um, Bobby and I are going to do our review of season two of Westworld. Well, I'm still curious how I pulled Ron Swanson. Is, ah. he, is he famous for his uh, guitar playing, for his... Well, uh, so he is famous his, for, he is partly famous for his alter ego uh, jazz saxophone playing. Um, close. But that's... That's not what I was thinking. Um, so Ron Swan, one of Ron Swanson's many uh, life edicts is never go to Europe. Oh, uh, and and wait, and, why? Why does he hold this view? You know, to to try to explain okay. it without meeting the character of yeah, Ron yeah. Swanson, who's played brilliantly by Nick Offerman. All right, um, all right. Just Ron is Ron is an American. Yeah, yeah. Okay, he's, just, so he's sort of, an American. And, right. and, and and Europe. He I mean, wants he wants lots of ice in his in his soft drink. Uh, soft drink? Are you kidding? Lagavulin, single malt. I mean, you know. Uh, okay. Yeah, well, yeah. well, you're right. I did just get back from from a Europe trip, and Indeed. I had a, had a great time. Uh, the Welcome weather back. was perfect. My favorite thing. Uh, did you meet the Prince of Wales? I, no, I kind of hoped maybe we would, but uh, you know what was funny? Oh, you were on Twitter this morning. You, didn't, you don't get the joke. No, I President I Trump. Once President again. Trump this morning tweeted the Prince of Wales. W H A L E S. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> The Prince of Wales. Oh my God! There's a Vineyard Vines joke in there somewhere. Uh, I, well, I, I made a Star Trek Four reference. Oh, Captain, <laughs> there be whales here. Oh my God, that is a good one. Um, like all the even numbered in the series. Indeed. No, I did not see any royals, um, but we did have an awesome bike tour in Paris. That was a really fun thing to do, and uh, the kids pedaled well in the streets of Paris. Oh, good. Yeah, um, and I will say also that not only on arrival in Paris were we greeted by some kind of strike that made me schlep my bags five blocks to get close enough to our hotel because uh-huh. the streets were all shut down near our hotel. But then when it was time to leave and we needed a, a taxi to get out of there, oh, sorry, monsieur, taxi strike. <laughs> like, that's, what, that's what the RER is for. Uh, you know, it was we had a lot of bags. Eh, all right, but all this is off topic. We, what is we, on we topic? We all know you have baggage, Bobby. <laughs> I'm sitting right across from it. Oh! <laughs> 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 Man, you came to play. <laughs> Can you go back uh, to Europe? I'm cracking myself up. Did you guys miss us, everybody? Oh yeah, it's been it's been this is like a, I think our longest hiatus in the history of the podcast. That's right. And as you can tell, we we did miss uh, miss each other. And man, we accumulated a lot of topics. Well, we didn't accumulate them. They just you yeah, know they just keep accumulating. If you'll forgive one curse word on this episode, the shit keeps piling up. So we have a cluster of law and military topics, and just a quick run. You show said on cluster. <laughs> What's wrong? <laughs> Uh, so first, uh, Al Alwi, uh, cert denied oh. in Al Alwi, a case we've been talking about, and uh, military detention in the courts is, is an issue. There, we'll, we'll run through that. that Secondly, pe- that, that people used to care about. People used to care about. There was a Just, time. Justice Breyer still cares. Uh, you and I still care. We will. We will talk about what the Again significance, if any, yeah. uh, is. Then uh, now we've got our favorite time of year. It's National Defense Authorization Act (NDAA) time of year, and so we've got some nuggets in it yeah it's a little premature to, to pull out the nuggets and examine them because who knows what's going to emerge in the final bill indeed whether this year we will really get a final bill uh as we always have in the past but there's there's some hot legal issues and interesting topics to flag so we'll do that um then we'll turn to something that i thought was a topic that was over after the president vetoed the bill directing the end of certain forms of u.s support for saudi coalition operations in yemen um but there's an interesting uh, provocative argument that's been made suggesting that uh, Congress's action was enough to trigger a steel seizures type 
problem for the administration. We'll, we'll come to grips with that issue. And then uh, the fourth one under this general heading, we'll talk about a bill that's been, uh, I guess, introduced for, what, the sixth or seventh year in a row now? Although, di- although it's a little different this time because now it has bipartisan co-sponsorship. Yeah, and it's an interesting mix, which we'll identify later, the Due Process Guarantee Act. Uh, and then we'll turn away from those more conventional topics and turn our attention to Trumplandia, where we have a whole bunch of separation of powers type issues. Uh, we've got some appointments issues. We've got some testimonial and executive privilege issues. What else have we got under that heading? Um, another abuse of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act of 1998. There you go. Uh, uh, we have the president uh, publicly encouraging foreign countries to hack his political opponent and share information with him. I think I've seen that show before. Yeah, but not uh, when he was president. <laughs> it doesn't. It's not okay either way. How about that? Fair uh, enough. But there's almost, <laughs> in some ways, I think it's even kind of worse what happened yesterday. And 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 it's been nice to see all of these Republican members of Congress lining up to condemn. Oh oh oh! Wait, that that hasn't happened. Well, look, we've got a lot as usual to talk about in the Trumplandia segment, um, and I think that will give us more than enough to fill the hour, if time permits. Uh, we've got thoughts about things ranging from uh, scoring 13 goals and celebrating as they go and people being unhappy about that, Women's World Cup. Uh, and uh, well, Wait, we also have to talk about how awesome the Women's World Cup is in general. Well, we'll t- yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, mean, I, I am a big fan. I thought that I, I was really rooting for Scotland against England. I thought that might end up well. Speaking Ooh, of it's Wales. It's a very uh, brave hearty kind of matchup there. I am uh, William Wallace. <laughs> um, and by the way, short, short version, I have no problem with 13 goals, but I do have problems with celebrating goals 8 through 13. Uh, it, it, 8A, but 7 was okay. Well, that's yes. the kind of fun we yes, were having for Vardy. actually, because we, of when they were scored in the game, okay, sir. We will get to that. Okay. That is for Vardy. Um First... Law, the military. Why don't we dig in with uh, the latest sort of uh, soft development, because the whole point of the story is it actually becomes not a development, in the ongoing evolution of uh, detention authority for enemy combatants still held at Guantanamo. Moath al-Awi, a Yemeni citizen, uh, has previously had his full habeas process, and the government prevailed, had enough evidence, uh, and, and so he's been held at Gitmo since you know, what, 2002? I think he was, he was an early. early. He, was, he was one of the early. He was early, one of the early. guys grabbed in yeah. the, the so-called Dirty 30 grab yep. in Pakistan. Yep. Um, his argument here is a in a second successive uh, petition is changed circumstances. And the, the, the gut of the claim is that, look, the enemy combatant military detention model that is relatively stable for the Gitmo detainees does depend on there being an armed conflict. Circumstances have changed over the years, over the decades now, and he had filed, I think, in 2015, around the time that Obama was trying to kind of have it both ways in terms of still conducting combat operations, but saying things that were in the nature of combat operations over, the combat phase is over, that created grist for the middle of litigation. The district court did not think that substantively anything had changed. That is, the district court thought that there's still combat activity and the armed conflict model that undergirds enemy combatant detention remains in place. D.C. Circuit affirmed. The issue goes to the Supreme Court on a cert petition. And last Monday, uh, SCOTUS denied cert. There was a statement from Justice Breyer, what amounted to a, he didn't call it a dissent from the denial, but it was a dissent from the denial. I don't know if it was a dissent. I think it was a, I mean, the, the, a couple of media outlets reported it was a dissent. I mean, he actually, he said it was a statement respecting the denial, which is the same thing he did five years ago in the Hussein case. He's clearly not wanting to style it as a dissent, but I don't have any way of reading it other than, I wish we had granted. I, he says oh, explicitly I I it's disagree. time to take right, but I don't this think, issue. I, I don't take the issue, right, but not necessarily this case. And then okay, and, fair. No, but, and there's a reason for that, right, which is Justice Kavanaugh did not participate. Um, and I think the reason why Justice Kavanaugh did not participate in this particular petition is because when he was still on the D.C. Circuit, he presumably voted to deny Al Alwi's petition for rehearing right, on right. Bonk. So he was participating around, below. Right? Where, so I think actually Breyer— All right, fair. So it is really just a—it is a substantively— clear, but not actually dissenting in this instance. Right. He, want, he wants them to take a case where there's nine justices, right, where Kavanaugh's not yeah. recused. And by the way, there are Guantanamo cases where Kavanaugh would not be recused. Right. Sure. Um, and, I, and I think there there was a procedural reason why this wasn't the one. Okay. But, okay, do you think that if Kavanaugh had been available, then he would have been dissenting from the denial yes. instead? Yes. He would have liked yes. to have had it? Yes. Yes, because I think there was no re- there was no reason why Al Alwi's case was a poor vehicle for resolving the issue other than 
the fact that it wouldn't have been a nine justice court. Well, let me press on this. Why does it matter? Yeah, obviously, all things being equal, you'd like all nine rather than eight justices. Well, if but Brian- the outcome is going to be the same either way. In my opinion, all we lose is even more so clearly. So I think that's probably right. But if you're Breyer, you might say to yourself, the only way Al Ali wins Right, is if we peel off one of the other, you know, a justice yeah. from the other side, and if, and, and <laughs> it's, not if we, be, it's not going to be Brett Kavanaugh. Of course not. But if you start for, it's just it, the numbers don't work out. Right, that 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 from from Breyer's perspective, right, a four-four split doesn't accomplish anything. So let's do this because you already know that I think he's he's going to lose yeah. on the merits either way. So I don't think it matters much. But let's be clear about what the particular issue is that Breyer is right. flagging. So, so so there's a little bit of a there's a little bit of a gap between what the the big questions that we've talked on the podcast before that are open in the D.C. Circuit and what Breyer's talking about. They're actually not the same thing. So in the D.C. Circuit, there's been a lot of attention paid to the sort of uncertain status of the due process rights of detainees and how that might bear upon the sort of you know, perpetual or at least potentially perpetual detention question. Um, and we talked about Judge Tatel's what concurring opinion in the denial of on banc in was it Ali or Kasim? Um, it's hard to keep all of these straight. And I've if, yeah, if, I've if tried. If, if, <laughs> if, if Steve's not keeping him straight, nobody can. I, uh, I, I couldn't keep him straight if I tried. And I tried. I tried. <laughs> um, so hey, well you done, know, President Jefferson. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so you know, I I think in the DC, so the fight in the DC Circuit is, is about that because the DC Circuit actually has resolved a whole bunch of questions about the scope of the AUMF. What Breyer's saying is actually a different point. Breyer's reiterating a point he made in Hussein five years ago, which is that the Supreme Court itself has actually said virtually nothing about the AUMF beyond the very specific holding of Hamdi. And the reason why I think it's telling that it's Breyer who's saying this is because, let's remember, Breyer was the swing vote in Hamdi, right? It was Breyer who produced the fourth vote for the plurality and the fifth vote for the government in toto on the merits of Hamdi's, you know, on the yeah. government's authority to detain he Hamdi. Is it fair to say he wants to do a check-in on what O'Connor wrote about, which is that, let's back up, in Hamdi 2004, it's at a stage where it's, you know, I think quite crystal clear there's a state of ongoing armed conflict mm-hmm. still in Afghanistan. Uh, of course, I still think that that remains true to this day, but it was it was really clear then. O'Connor says, look, uh, given that, then the law of armed conflict applies and it's traditional incident of warfare that you can detain those who are the combatants for the enemy. And she said, we're, and I'm paraphrasing here, we're mindful that this is an unconventional situation. Over time, these understandings may actually evolve. They may change in the predicate that there's an armed conflict that may actually erode. And she all but said, we're going to have to keep an eye on this and maybe revisit it down the road, which, you know, makes perfect sense. That's clearly right as a matter of logic. Breyer is saying, here we are in 2019. The U.S. role there has changed somewhat. It's been a long time. We need to check in. It's certainly... It strongly, to me, implies that he feels that that I'll always ride on the merits. In fact, it has. It's not just that we need to check in, but that it's changed in a relevant way. But he hasn't actually come out and said that directly. He hasn't said, "I would, if I reach the merits, conclude on the facts that there's no longer a sufficient type of or or uh, kind of." armed conflict to sustain detention. So at the risk of causing trouble, I actually think Breyer's making two different points, right? And I think that's one of them, that that it's at least time for the court to check in and maybe I would be, you know, I who was the swing vote in Hamdi, although he Might won't be. although he won't be the swing vote now. Right. Right. Exactly. But which is an important point. I mean the the Ham, the five Hamdi right, because Scalia was in dissent. So the five Hamdi the five justices in the majority in Hamdi were O'Connor, um, Rehnquist, um Breyer, Kennedy, right, and Thomas. Right. Although Scalia, if, if Yasser Hamdi had been there somehow as a non-citizen, right. Scalia would have That's been right. the majority. That's right. totally right. But um, so I say all that just to say um, I, I think part of what Breyer's saying is it's time for a check-in. But he's also saying something else, Bobby, which is I think an important point that we often lose sight of. Not you and I, but that, that discussion in this field mm-hmm. often loses sight of, which is Hamdi itself is a hyper-narrow holding. Like, even with regard, you know, even leaving aside what Hamdi holds with regard to folks picked up on the battlefield in Afghanistan, right? Breyer says Hamdi never considered people picked up outside of Afghanistan, right? Hamdi never considered authority to detain people who were not part of Al-Qaeda, right? Hamdi never considered authority to detain... You mean out of, out of the Afghan Taliban? Yes, right? Yeah. Sorry, yes. Yeah. Um, um, uh, Hamdi never considered um, the government's power to detain someone who was not engaged in active hostilities at the time of their capture, right? And so he's saying it's not just that I want to check in on Hamdi. It's that there are actually yeah. massively important questions about the AUMF. Mind you, the D.C. Circuit has mostly answered 
Um, yeah. But that the Supreme Court yeah. hasn't. So I think uh, Moeth al-Awi's fact pattern is only a fairly limited step further away That's from right. the core of Hamdi. Well, and that may be another reason why Breyer wasn't sure this was the right, right vehicle. It, so what's interesting, of course, as we all appreciate, most of what actually goes on in terms of kinetic counterterrorism over the past, say, decade is involving circumstances removed from – obviously, there's a ton still going on in Afghanistan, but the types of cases that really get people – wondering about the legal architecture are situations unfolding in, say, Africa or Yemen or other places, people who are affiliated with organizations like al-Shabaab, Islamic State, or others that are not they're not directly participating in 2001 combat operations for the Taliban in the field in Afghanistan. Al-Awi, the, uh, the case the government made in succeeding in the initial uh, habeas petition was this guy was in the 55th brigade he was fighting he was yes he got out to pakistan but was grabbed pretty soon after he got out originally he'd been in the field that makes him only really marginally different sort of there's some displacement as to the time of capture but otherwise he's pretty assimilable to yasser hamdi so i agree that he's he's that's another reason why his case actually doesn't really test the boundaries what it does do it does squarely present the old hamdi question which is so checking in on afghanistan where are we today? Now, the fundamental flaw is, is, is exactly why the D.C. Circuit and the District Court ultimately rejected his claim on the merits. Um, one need only look at a map of Taliban uh, activities in Afghanistan, the uh, the list of, uh, we don't have as much public data anymore about DOD activities in Afghanistan, but you can get some data on the number and pace of airstrikes. Uh, it seems to me pretty clear that, in fact, there's still an armed conflict going on there. But there are a lot of really interesting issues that do arise along the way. And you know, one is, is the old Ludicky question, which you've written about so much, and that is, is, is this Supreme Court likely to break with the Ludicky decision or distinguish it and claim a theoretical possibility that they would declare an end to hostilities when the political branches haven't. Because obviously, the Trump administration is not going to declare. Well, actually, let me back up. We don't actually know what Donald Trump might do as long as he's in office vis-a-vis Afghanistan. We have good reason to believe through things that have been hinted at and talked about that it's not impossible to imagine that at some point he decides that he does want us out of Afghanistan, just decides he wants to pull us out, damn the consequences. Uh, that's caused a lot of consternation. There's been a lot of pushback when he's leaned in that direction. I don't think he's really going to do it, but it's not impossible that he would. If he were to do that, then uh, the Al-Awi question really does loom large. And there is there then is a need to confront the question the Supreme Court itself never had to confront, which is, can you sum up the global footprint of counterterrorism activities targeting al-Qaeda and its associated forces and their activities? Do you count the Islamic State in the mix? Do you add that all up? Do you disaggregate it across regions? Either way, for whatever's the relevant frame, does it get to the level of intensity that constitutes armed conflict if you assume we're no longer in Afghanistan the way we were before? I don't see the court getting that issue anytime soon, um, in part because the cases that really present that squarely, um, they're not at Gitmo currently. No, that's right. And so I think the question, right. I mean, I don't, I don't think, I don't read Monday's opinion as a sign that the court's getting back in a Gitmo anytime soon. Right. I do read it as a, as Breyer laying down a marker that if something other than Gitmo were to happen, um, the court, you know, Breyer now has something he can point to his colleagues and say, guys, you know, this isn't just business as usual. This is something new and different. we got to take this up. Yeah. And I suspect that everybody who's a player in this understood that, whether he had issued that statement or not. But it's just a reminder, the court is still there, and these questions are still open. And this goes to a theme that you and I have talked about yeah. a lot. I've written a lot about this going back to 2011 or 12. Around the middle of the Obama administration, it began to seem we'd hit this equilibrium because the government was more or less winning both in Congress and in the courts. Um, but there's an inherent instability about the equilibrium that was developed back then because that equilibrium is pretty specific to the legacy Gitmo detainees. All right. Um, I think that's all we should say about Al Alwi. But, but speaking of Gitmo. Yeah, there's a lot going on. In, so we have a Republican Senate NDAA bill. We've got a Democrat's uh, House NDAA bill. And, let, and let's remind people why, unlike every other piece of legislation, this one actually is going to pass. Well, you know, it always Usually. has in the past. Oh, sorry. I'm right? sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. Why? Why everyone expects right that right. this one will well, pass. Well, the NDAA always it, it, it's, it's like, like the it, one must pass. It's the train that always leaves the station yep. and arrives where it's going. 
I think there's reason to be worried about that this year because of the you know the divisions between the House and the Senate. Um, we'll see what happens, but it does mean that we're going to have a much more interesting uh, conference uh, reconciliation process to try to deal with the what are likely going to be some pretty big differences between the Senate and House versions. All that said, we're not there yet. Right now, we're at that stage where we look at the stuff that got out of the committees or that are in the markups and the drafts. And we can flag things that are interesting because they might happen. So, Steve, what jumped out to you? So, I mean, I think um, I'm, I, what jumped out at me and I'm, I'm, is that we see, even in the House bill, right, continuation of at least the core of the detainee transfer restrictions, but with this uh, carve-out for medical transfer. Yeah, this is really remarkable. How come suddenly there seems to be at least some degree of bipartisan willingness to allow for medical transfers into the United States? I mean, I think there's been, I, I think, first of all, good journalism, right, some of it by our friend Katie Bo Williams, right, by some other people, um, have really emphasized the um, serious medical problems that some of the detainees are encountering. Um, you know, there's an episode we talked about last year where one of the judges, right, had a medical issue that took a while that, right, that, that you know, faci- it, is, it is only going to be more expensive, more complicated, and potentially more problematic from a legal perspective if they're not providing adequate medical care at Guantanamo. So, or, what, or I'm sorry, yeah. if they're not providing adequate medical care to the detainees. Right. And, and so if they're not going to bring the mountain to Muhammad, you got to bring Muhammad to the mountain. The mountain, in this case, being a mountain inside the United States, which with, means with good medical services. Which means crossing that Rubicon. Uh. It means it means two things. One, you know, going back to the attempt to move KSM to New York for trial, we've had this sort of just like unrelenting, no way, no how, under any circumstances, may any detainee come into the United States. You know, I guess uh, you know it's been about almost nine years now, maybe 10 years. And this is definitely a, a chink in the armor. And the question is, is that then likely to, to lead to more? It, obviously, the, the Republican majority in the Senate, in its treatment of this issue, there are, is like paragraph after paragraph of endless ways of trying to say, this is just temporary. This cannot result in any immigration consequences. This cannot result in any other consequences. The person must be sent back. Um, do you think that works? Or is this a little bit of more of a, of a situation where the person comes into the United States and notwithstanding all those bits of statutory language, assuming they get enacted, um, suddenly there will in fact be claims available for the detainee in question to raise that wouldn't have been there if they'd been kept at Guantanamo? It will certainly be litigated, right? I mean, I think we can assume yeah. that, you know, the, the second the detainee is on U.S. soil, right, papers will be, fi- papers will be filed in the relevant federal district court, right? right. I mean, and, 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 and we'll go from there. Um, as you know, I mean, we've talked about how there's this growing body of awkward open case law about the extent to which the suspension clause and other judicial review protections apply to undocumented immigrants um, on U.S. soil. And I actually think this dovetails with that because presumably yeah. right, a Gitmo detainee with no prior connection to the U.S. who is, you know, brought into the U.S. solely for medical treatment. Like a bubble of non-territoriality surrounding them is I mean, what I don't Congress think is I don't aiming think, for. I don't, think, I don't think Congress has the power to do that. Yeah, that but that's what they're trying to do, right? Yes. They're trying to make it – It's yes, they're physically here, but it's a fiction. It's like the reverse of a legal fiction. It's yep. a, there's, there's a practical truth, and we try – well, maybe that is a legal fiction. Um, all right, do you think it's going to get through? I actually think this could be one of the real fights in conference, right? Yeah. Because I think the this I think this part matters to the House. I think part of why the transfer restrictions are otherwise still in there is to bolster the case, yeah. right, for having this in there. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's going to depend on some of the horse trading that's going to go on at conference. Yeah. So I think I think because you know, it, I think it's remarkable that you do see the Senate version's got a a much more belt and suspenders version, but they've got one. So I think it does get through. Somebody eventually, sooner or later, then will be brought to wherever they're brought to for medical services. There will be that instant filing. I think the it, there is a provision in the Senate bill that I'm sure will be in the final one that ensures that all jurisdiction lies in in the same court that already has it for the habeas case. Is the D.C. Circuit, uh, the district courts in the D.C. Circuit. I think they'd make pretty short work of it, but there would be some friction around it. But I don't think it ultimately is going to change the prospects and fate for any detainee who happens to go through that process. That's probably right. Um, it, but what's interesting to me is then it does, if that happens, it can become a test case for the proposition that you can bring someone in for some purpose and you can surround them with some kind of bubble of special limitations and you can get them out again, which might, right. I mean, might, that's... might provide a pathway out of the Milcom mess 
if what you want to do is not lose the ability to hold them as enemy combatants in perpetuity at Guantanamo, but you want to go ahead and try to try them for a federal criminal offense in ordinary federal district court and bringing them in for this special purpose, um, and either post-sentence or post-acquittal, if that's the way it goes, being able, if you wanted to, to put them back at Guantanamo and that other uh, – I'm not saying that's a good policy or bad policy, but it's something that has kept people to some extent from being willing to consider the federal prosecution option. Yeah, I, I mean, I just – I, it's interesting. I, I see a really big distinction between sort of temporarily transporting the, someone into the U.S. for the sole purpose of emergency medical care right, and bringing them in for the purpose of, like, some kind of formal proceeding. Um, it's like a lot of distinctions. If uh, if the person who's the decision-making judge wants that to be a salient distinction, they can name it so. And if they want it to be a distinction without a difference, they could and I think so that's, declare. And I think that, so, so I think this is the concern is that, you know, it's going to create all kinds of litigation uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. But, hey, what would this podcast be if there weren't litigation, national security litigation yeah, uncertainty? Right. It'd be a lot shorter. Well, it'd be the, it'd be the frivolity law in law podcast, um, which it pretty much is anyways, just all but name. Uh, there's so many other interesting provisions. Did you see uh, the very next provision, military commissions and contempt authority? This is in section 1031 of the Senate bill. Uh, it's very interesting. It makes clear, or it says, we, we are paraphrasing here. Uh, we want to make clear that military commission judges and court of military commission review judges may indeed impose contempt sanctions on, among others, those who disobey their orders. They don't say Marine generals, but it seems like maybe they have that in mind. Uh, and then they have a clause that says, and reversal on appeal of those orders is only permissible if the DC circuit finds abuse of discretion. Uh, do, do you read this as an attempt to settle questions of clarity about whether they have this authority? And, it, and is it odd to have a provision that says you can only review, reverse for abuse of discretion in a contempt setting? Um, the latter part doesn't phase me quite so much. I mean, there are other contexts where Congress does legislate standards of review in that respect. But there, there is a degree of like, you know, micromanaging going on in this provision that I find humorous. It's like, if you know, this is what you're going to focus Of all the problems. This right, is the one you want to solve. This is the one you want to at least attempt to solve. I mean, come on. Okay, uh, going in sequence, uh, the next one up is also super interesting. Uh, we've talked a little bit on the show about the occasions in which DOD uses force, especially in Somalia. This is where it comes up a lot. Uh, and in the public statement about the use of force, there's a reference to it being a use of force in collective self-defense of, of local partners. Uh, and, the, and the issues come up, and probably we've talked about it here even more, vis-a-vis -vis Syria, where in at least one instance uh, – we conducted, the United States conducted airstrikes, close air support in uh, defense of SDF ground forces rather than our own forces, uh, including against uh, Syrian. And if I remember correctly, uh, wasn't there also the Russian private military uh, contractor, the Wagner yeah. folks? Um, and so these raise questions about uh, affirmative authority to use force perhaps beyond the boundaries that the AUMF would get you. So Section 1032 of the Senate bill uh, very interestingly, basically calls for a detailed, and I mean, there's a lot of specific callouts, a detailed report on the substantive positions DOD is taking here and the procedures they use to decide, like who exactly gets to decide a particular circumstance is involved here. In the report that uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee just put out, I think this, this afternoon, um, sort of a preliminary report accompanying the bill, it makes clear that they're not saying that this isn't a legitimate theory, but they are saying this is something that needs a close look. Um, I think there's a lot going on there. Of course, it's only going to be a report, and it's not clear that the public would ever know what is said. But it is good, at least, that Congress is showing concern about this, because this goes directly to the scope of authority to use kinetic force in the field beyond the boundaries of what would otherwise be the case absent this conflict if you were relying only on the AUMF. Um, that similar, in fact, I think in spirit at least, uh, the very next section, 1033, uh, if the chair or ranking member of one of the Armed Services Committees asks Secretary of Defense to provide a copy of any execute order, uh, they've got to give a copy or else give a detailed justification of exceptional circumstances warranting the withholding. Which tells us what? It tells us that there's at least one instance where the uh, committees have wanted a copy of an execute order and were not given that. And despite whatever leverage they might have been able to bring to bear in practice, still didn't get it. And now they, that, that, There's a story there, and I'm very curious to know what that's all about. Seriously. 
Uh, Cyber Solarium is going to get a five-month <laughs> extension of its deadline because it only began meeting in April. It needs more time. It's going to get more time. The takeaway here is that uh, the Senate, at least, is interested and wants that report. And in their accompanying report from today, in describing this provision, they say that we want to make sure we get that report in time to impact the next NDA process. So Solarium, your work is being observed in the Senate. That's good, which makes sense. You've got uh, the Senate to thank and the House to thank for existing in the first place. Um, an issue that's in there in the Senate version, Section 1640, that is really significant and it's something I've been following closely for a long time. It's this question of uh, managing the process of potentially separating the command of NS the command of Cyber Command from the directorship of NSA. This is the dual hat issue, uh, friends. The Cyber Command is sort of was sort of incubated from from uh, within the the Fort Meade facilities with the capabilities of NSA and the know-how and the personnel making Cyber Command uh, grow faster and more effectively. Uh, there is still a lot of entanglement. It's all kind of embodied in the fact that it's a dual hat. Uh, Paul Nakasone, the general who is the head of Cyber Command, is also the director of NSA. Um, for years, the NDAA has been used to put some breaks on and some safeguards around the process of eventually separating the two entities in the form of having two different commanders. Um, going back at least to 2017, there are a series of statutory requirements. Uh, no matter what the president orders, and the president has ordered the eventual separation of the two entities, uh, the, the separation can't actually take place until SECDEF issues written certifications about you know, things like, uh, you know, it, we now have deconfliction procedures in place when the equities of Cyber Command to have operational effect may be our intention with the equities of NSA to do collection activity on a given target. Um, or the question of whether Cybercom, if separated, would lose a notable amount of functional capability because they no longer have access to the accesses and toolings that uh, NSA provides. So that is all uh, re-upped. And in the report from the Senate today, it says expressly they don't think Cybercom's ready yet. It is not yet time. And people need to remember that these uh, limitations are there. Um, I think that's about all all I wanted to say about this. There's one other thing to flag just as a signal of importance. Section 1645 of the Senate bill um, calls, expresses that the, the Senate wants to know more about how the Defense Department is teaming up with DHS to follow up on a memorandum of understanding from October of last, last fall, October 2018, which basically is the uh, policy framework through which Cybercom can step in to provide assistance uh, with its capabilities to DHS. So the operational activities would be under color of civilian authorities, but would actually be performed by Cyber Command in the event of a, quote, cyber attack on a national scale. That's a very, very important topic for understanding the role of the military in engaging in cyber operations that involve defense of systems in the United States. Um, and certainly we don't really learn anything from this about what the, the meets and bounds are. I guess what we learn is that Congress isn't so sure they understand what Cybercom and DHS have come up between each other. Um, they're going to try to get more information, and it's a really an important topic to keep an eye on. All right, I think that that's it for the NDA on my part. Do you have anything else? No, I'm just I'm, – I'm, I'm, I was looking at Twitter and thinking to myself, oh, it's so nice to pretend that there's like – these nuanced conversations to have about things like the NDAA. Well, if you're looking on Twitter, you're looking in the wrong place. Well, no, because Twitter is how I figured out that Secretary Pompeo just came out and, and blamed Iran for the attack on these uh, oil tankers in the in the what the Gulf of Oman. Is well, that where they are? Well, you, you say that it, it sounds as if you're you're disparaging that. Is there any reason to doubt that he's no. accurate in saying that, or no. is that a problem? Just, it's just no. But this comes on the heels of this remarkable like 2 a.m. exchange on the House floor. Was it last night or two nights ago? Um, where basically two members of the House kind of accidentally admitted on the public record that Pompeo had provided a classified briefing where he had laid out the administration's legal theory for why the AOMF applies to Iran. I had not heard about that. Can, oh, yeah. you, can you send me whatever? Yeah, I'll send you. Uh, it, yeah. It, it, there's video of the exchange on the House floor. No, I'd like um, to see that. But look, um, obviously there was there was something very serious that happened. I think there were two tankers. There yeah. were explosions. I don't know any details about it, but uh, it is certainly possible that it was, in fact, an attack that carried out by Iran. You and I have emphasized repeatedly, maybe like three shows ago, 
that the path, yes, there are these issues and questions about whether the 2001 or 2002 AUMFs can be stretched to enable uh, a claim that there's existing statutory authority to uh, use force against Iran. I, I know you're, you're deeply skeptical. I'm pretty skeptical. But there has always been the possibility that Iran itself would preempt that issue by taking an action that would trigger uh, self-defense authorities. And there's a possibility that something like that has happened here. Um, well, we're going to watch that space. Yes. But it's, it's definitely, uh, but, this but, is real high-stakes poker But now. we talked about, I mean, we talked about the Persian Gulf of Tonkin. Yeah, exactly. It's That's literally exactly a gulf. All right, and here, here was the Gulf of Oman, oh, right? Gulf of Oman. Yeah, we had, we had, we had the wrong gulf. We were, we were one gulf off. The, one gulf, two gulfs? The gulf? gulf of Oman of Tonkin. The, the, you know, Persian Gulf works better for the, I know, uh, for the for play. The, right, because no one calls it the Oman Gulf. Yeah, the Oman. The Oman Gulf of Tonkin doesn't quite work. No. All right, uh, what's this business about the Due Process Guarantee Act? That old way? chestnut. Well, yeah, it is an old chestnut because this thing gets, inter- it gets introduced. It's, it's, a, it's a bill that comes up every year. This year, as you pointed out earlier, it's got a it's little got some more. New, some, it, so it was rewritten, and it has some new teeth, and it has some new friends. Well, it's got some interesting new friends. You, it's not every day you see uh, Feinstein and White House team up with Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, Susan, and Collins. Susan Collins. Yeah. It's like it's sort of like some kind of uh, you know Ocean's Eleven type gathering of disparate uh, <laughs> folks. Um, so yeah. what is okay? Wait, this is gonna be fun to think about. Like you know, who's who? Match the senators to the to the, <laughs> oh, to let's the characters. Not. All right, so it, t- never mind the 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 degree to which this is kind of picked up. This sort of. Uh, left and libertarian right. and then also moderate kind of triumvirate so there. this all started with the fiscally speaking of ndaas this all started with the fiscal year 2012 ndaa and the compromise that was hammered out um in that bill over whether the language i think it was section 1021b um just largely codifying bobby what to that point had been the dc circuit's case law on detention of nonsense at Guantanamo might also apply to citizens or other non-citizens in the United States. So at that time, the one time Congress really engaged on detention authority since they were doing it, the question arose, hey, Congress, will you either clearly ban, clearly approve, or muddle through on whether all this stuff you're saying about detention will right. or will not apply to U.S. citizens. And Congress said, muddle. And they said, we'll go for muddle. This is this is too hard. And then there's been this bill introduced. Uh, Feinstein's very much, uh, you know, the progenitor. In, in the, in the progenitor of this. Yeah. And uh, tell us what this version, if it were to come through, yeah. what would it do? So this is actually, I mean, this this the, the, the reason why I think this is worth flagging is because unlike the last five versions, four versions, they've actually not only gain these new co-sponsors, but also tweak the language. Um, so the basic gist is the bill would rewrite the Non-Detention Act. And just to remind everybody, the Non-Detention Act, enacted in 1971, codified at 18 U.S.C. Section 4001A, um, says no citizen shall be imprisoned or otherwise detained except pursuant to an act of Congress. Right. So no more, hey, we've got a war going on. We think as an emergency war power type measure, we need to put some American citizens in a prison camp. Let's get all the Japanese citizens of this kind, the Americans of Japanese ancestry in this company, this in this country. This was an express repudiation of the Japanese internments, an attempt in in the early 1970s. But not Korematsu, right? Because Korematsu actually was detained pursuant to a statute. I mean, this is right, this right, is a distinction. Right, I think that's right, lost right. a lot. No, no, no. But there's no yes. there's no question yep. though that it was nonetheless yes. a reaction to the Japanese internments, an attempt to say never again should that happen, and in, a unless repeal, and a repeal of the Emergency Detention Act of 1950. That's right, because you actually. Have had some clear statutory authority that would have fueled that sort of thing as a possibility. So what was it that was limited about the original Non-Detention Act that this statute would uh, tighten up? So we're back to Hamdi. Um, So the whole purpose of the Due Process Process Guarantee Act is to basically, um, I I don't want to say solve, but basically clarify Congress's view of how use of force authorizations should interface with the with the non-detention act or or a declaration where there or declarations of wars yeah. if we ever had those anymore is so, it fair to say basically it's insisting on a rule of clear statement um, indeed um, so so the 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 bill would add um, new section four thousand one a two which says any act of Congress that authorizes an imprisonment or detention described in paragraph one shall be consistent with the Constitution and expressly authorized. So not just a clear statement, but like an express statement. Right. So if this had been the rule when Hamdi was decided, Hamdi was a U.S. citizen by birth in Louisiana. Yeah. 
Uh, he was otherwise thought by the court to be within the scope of detention authority because of his asserted membership in the Taliban. Yep. The idea would be, well, but if it turns out he's a citizen, then he can't be detained after all. He can still be prosecuted, but can't be detained unless and until Congress passes a new statute to say so expressly. Because simply put, this would create a clear statement rule. No detention under color of an AUMF, let alone naked Article Two authority. Uh, in, in less than until there's a statute that says, yes, we mean for this to include U.S. persons being subject to whatever other military detention might otherwise be covered. Yep. Uh, is there anything more to it than that? There's, yes. Yeah, so, okay. so, yeah, what else? So this is where things get a little awkward. So then we got to section, um, I guess it's 2B, right, of the bill, um, which tries to speak more specifically to use of force authorizations. So 2B1, uh, so the new new 4001B1 under the bill, no U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident who's apprehended in the United States may be imprisoned or otherwise detained without charge or trial unless such imprisonment or detention is expressly authorized by an act of Congress. Um, and so, right, there's this... That's all, superfluous and well, wait, opens up a can of worms. I don't think it's superfluous. Why not? Because the apprehended in the United States clause... I think is is ambiguous as to whether it's only modifying lawful permanent resident or whether it's modifying U.S. citizen as well. Well, but so the prior part just sets a blanket rule that detention of authority over U.S. persons, meaning citizens and lawful permanent yes. residents, uh, it's a clear statement rule. Yes. At that point, you don't need any further language if well, that's unless, what you want the rule unless, to be. Unless the argument is that the AOMF is a clear statement, because here's why it matters. This new, this the second proviso I just read. Um, it comes with it, a general authorization to use military force, a declaration of war, any similar authority on its own may not be construed to authorize the imprisonment or detention without charge or trial of a citizen or LPR apprehended in the United States. So the bill is trying to draw a distinction between the sort of citizen or LPR apprehended overseas, right, and citizen or LPR apprehended in the U.S. and say maybe, right, an AUMF is enough if the citizen or LPR is operating overseas, but not in the U.S. That, a, that's just terrible drafting. B, decide what policy you want it to be and state yes. it clearly. That's just, that's a wait, it goes Wait, wait, there's one that's more That's a step. complete, and also it, it yeah, it, wait, I, I'm sort of also, astonished. Also, paragraph two shall apply to an authorization to use military force, a declaration of war, or any similar authority enacted before, on, or after the date of enactment of the statute. So in other words, they're trying to draw a distinction. And I just think the problem with that is, um, why would a statute be expressed within the meaning of the first set of right. claims? It, indeed, this would force you to assume that actually the only part that has to be expressed would be an in-country capture, and the rest of it could still be implied, since otherwise, what work is that clause doing? Yeah. So, you know, what a I, mess, guys! Come on. I mean, I, I assume this is what it took to get this bipartisan, you know, ca- uh, 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 was it um, uh, Captain uh, Marvel, Team Marvel, uh, yeah, the yeah. Avengers? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Senators assemble. Um, oh, but, 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 I mean, I think they've made it. Well, so I understand what they're trying to do. I think, I oh. think they may have made a little bit of. They a should hassle. hire Marvel or Disney to write the bill for them, so it'd be a little bit clearer. Or us. Oh. Marvel should hire us. Now you're talking. <laughs> Wait, can I tell you a little nugget? Personal history. Ooh. So I'm I'm a I'm a one L in in law school, and I'm trying to figure out what my summer job is going to be. And was this uh, when they were still building the Transcontinental Railroad? <laughs> it was a li- it was that was in place, uh, just barely. Uh, this was when Marvel, uh, the comic book company, uh, was still not doing well economically. Was getting back on its feet. And I sent a I figured out where their address was in New York, and I sent them a letter and asked. Do you guys hire summer legal interns in your law office? And the general counsel wrote me back and said, uh, no one's ever asked before. Uh, can't pay you, but if you want to come down here, sure. And I didn't take it. I went to Houston instead, and I had a great summer, and I wouldn't change anything about my life. But it would have been really cool if I'd gone there and ended up being there when the company was still coming Seriously. back out of its early economic troubles. You could have bought Google at five. There you go. Employee number four. Uh, okay, so Trump land? Wait, I think we forgot something. You want to say anything about the Yemen letter and this this steel seizures argument? So a group of scholars have... Can we say no? Can we skip this one? Yeah, well, since we've gone this far, let's just say this. Okay. Uh, On a prior show, we reviewed the fact that Congress did pass a bill that in complex ways was designed to... Very modestly limit... uh, very modestly limited. I don't know. It would have it would have ended certain things the United States does to provide support in air refueling. 
Right, which is one of the few things we're actually doing for them. Right, so it was for fuel and, on the ground. And, and it would have constrained the sharing of intelligence. So it would have absolutely had this big impact, or else what were they bothering with? They seemed to think it was important. Um, Wait, Congress passes legislation that for symbolic reasons? Surely you just. No, no, no. So anyways, Congress does pass this. It was widely touted, not by you, but by many others, as this <laughs> dramatic, as this really important reassertion of the That's powers. That's an evergreen statement. It was widely touted, not by you. <laughs> It was widely touted by many people as, aha, Congress finally back in the war powers game. Trump vetoed it. Um, now there's a letter from a group of scholars arguing that, you know, so it didn't become law, but it sure did express the view of Congress, rather like Congress back in the, uh, uh, the lead up to the steel seizures case took steps that they expressed clearly that were treated as sufficient. Even though it was not reflected in, in enacted legislation. In the affirm- of course, it was sort of implicitly, it was, it was, it was I think, different back then. The Taft-Hartley business did not include, it sort of is the implication of what became law, but it didn't get included in the law. That was treated as enough to put Truman in steel seizures category three, which made it harder for him to win. And indeed, he then didn't win on his attempt to seize private property, the steel mills. Uh, so the argument of these scholars is, we actually have the same situation here. It's just a, you've, got, uh, a, you've got a very clear statement of what Congress at least wanted the rules to be. And the president, therefore, his power is at the lowest ebbs. He's in category three. Therefore, he loses. But of course, that skips the critical question just because you're in category three. And I'm not saying that that's the right answer here, but let's assume that it is. That doesn't mean the president loses. Nope. The question then is, Take all note, right, con law students. Yeah, yeah. Is it, does his Article Two authority extend to what he's doing? And is there anything Congress, has Congress actually forbidden him from doing something? Congress clearly, in this case, has not forbidden him from doing it. That's the whole point of the veto. It had that effect. So he's not directly contravening some otherwise existing body of law. And the question is, does the president otherwise have authority to do this? I know some people think he doesn't have that authority to begin with, but if you thought he had the authority before, I think he still wins. This isn't analogous to steel seizures, even though the letter asserts that it's ex- as if it's on point. So, so can I, can I posit- there's, no, there's no seizure of private property or some other extra legal act going on. Can I posit a different scenario? Hmm. Imagine a situation where Congress under the War Powers Resolution passes a termination resolution, um, which under 50 U.S.C. 1544C just requires both houses. It requires bicameralism, but not presentment. Right. right? So it's a charter problem. It's an, unconst- it's an unconstitutional legislative veto, yeah. right? Um, and so it wouldn't have legal effect. It wouldn't have direct legal effect. But would you take such a termination resolution as sufficient proof that if the president were continuing to exercise the hostilities of which he had duly notified Congress under Section blah blah blah, right? Um, that Congress's concurrent resolution, although not legally operative, was still sufficient uh, sufficiently emblematic of its intent to put us in box three. I think. It, it would be exactly like this scenario where Congress, you know, both houses passed with bicameralism yeah. this set of views. I don't, I don't see, you know, there'd be some different labeling, but the effect would be the same. Okay. Something is not a law, so it's not a commander in chief override right. claim, which is the, which would be hard to sustain. Yeah. It's just that you're in perhaps category three, but the president still wins, or at least the president might still win. Right? I mean, that would depend yeah. upon well, the assessment. Yeah, right. I mean, right? We'd have to do, we'd have to do that analysis. So, um, all this to say, there's a letter sent to, I think, Congress Speaker Pelosi saying right? you should sue. You should, sing, you should sue. And, you know, listen, guys, I... I, uh, yeah, I agree. I don't think either of us think this is a good idea. But it sure is interesting to talk through. It's a great teaching vehicle for teasing out the difference between saying... There are some you're in, let, me, let me finish yeah, this. I'm sorry. You're in, the, you're in the... There's a difference between saying you're in Category 3 and saying the president can't do it. That, it's oh, a huge, oh, Well, you and I, you and I agree with that completely. I'm just, I'm just, you know, as I think about my syllabus for my fall 2019 large section first year con law class, there are too many freaking teaching vehicles. Yeah, I would definitely say that the nuances of cashing out war powers debates under... Although Chad is a lot more important than it was a year ago. Yeah, Chad should, should be in Chata, there. Chata's I would getting, say I would say this particular vehicle, it, it'd be interesting to tease this out in class. Yes. You know, if you're if yes. you're doing steel seizures in con law, um, it would be a good sort of five-minute colloquy yeah. with a student. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know what you include. It's a... It's a Fort- I'm not one of those weird people who doesn't teach Marbury, but we know we have some of those on our faculty. <laughs> um, besides, if I if I didn't teach Marbury, how could I make fun of myself for being asked if I thought it was right? Exactly. Decided? So now you need to keep it in the wheelhouse. Keep that keep that audio clip ready to go. All right. Should we do a quick run through of uh, Trump Trumplandia? Trumplandia. 
Uh, By the way, can I just say, Trumplandia is, I mean, I know it's always a dumpster fire, but it feels especially dumpster fire-ish to me this week. Well, I think that the interview, this bit about, like, seeing, I wouldn't call the FBI, and there's nothing wrong with taking information right. from a foreign intelligence and then, agency. And then Stephanopoulos asks him, you know, the FBI director says this, and he says, the FBI director is wrong. Yeah, well, you're not surprised to hear him say that. I'm not, I'm not surprised to hear, I, I continue to be surprised that none of the other, you know, leaders in his party... Um, are willing to stand up and say that that was wrong. Like, I just, I, you know, I, I, I shouldn't have any faith that these people are going to show any bones at modicum of independence. But, like, you know, what is it? I mean, I, we're, we're, we're getting closer and closer to the point where he really could walk out in the Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and the Republican caucus would rally around him. Well, it's a it's a very sad day when any president of the United States would say anything remotely like what this person did say the other day, and I'm I'm not surprised at all, yeah. but I'm very disheartened by yeah. it. All right, but all right. um, but but not to be outdone by himself, uh, allow myself to introduce myself. <laughs> um, two other, I think, quick Trumplandia pieces. There is the um the the installation of Ken Cuccinelli as the acting director of the U.S. Uh, was it Bureau of Citizenship and Immigration Services, USCIS? Okay, so compatible with the Federal Vacancies Reform Act or not compatible? So I think once again, the administration has found a way to exploit one of the ways in which the FERA is not drafted very well. Okay, so um, potentially compatible even if unfortunate? Yeah, there's an open question about... So the, what they're relying on here is one of the ways that you can fill a vacancy on a temporary basis um, is by appointing the person who was previously the, quote, first assistant. Okay. Um, so this is like the deputy becomes the acting... Like, right. This yeah. is how Patrick Shanahan became acting Secretary yeah. of Defense. Um, everyone agrees that if the first assistant was already in place as the first assistant for some period then of time before the vacancy arose... No problem. So how long was Kitchenelli first assistant? He wasn't. Okay, what happened? So um, they, the guy who was first assistant, a guy named, I think, Mark Cummins, right? Um, his day job was deputy director of USCIS, which is classical first assistant, right? Yeah. He had been serving as the acting director for, oh, about a week, because this is how things work in Trumplandia. So the administration takes Cuccinelli, who has never served a day in the federal government in any position. He didn't even clerk for a federal judge. Like, I mean, like, no federal government experience. Um, and they install him in the brand new position of principal deputy uh, director. Uh, uh, yes. And then they decree that the principal deputy director, not the deputy director, is in fact the first assistant. And so, like, simultaneously with him assuming the, you know, the, the, the uh, internally created and appointed position of principal deputy director, he becomes acting director by dint of the FVRA. So what's the best statutory fix if we were able to magic wand this? So there are two. Say, like, you have to be in place a certain number of days? So the first fix is, the first fix is that you have to be the first assistant before the vacancy arises okay. to qualify as the first assistant. Yeah. Right. And then the second is, you know, and this is a little bit more complicated, but um, Congress has done this right for each major federal agency defined by law who the first assistant is. So, for example, 28 U.S.C. 508 says for DOJ, the DAG right. is the first assistant. Right. Um, right, right. There are other examples of that. You know, yeah, I think, so you got to go agency by agency and I mean, name the I, I relevant think that's officers. cumbersome, but yeah. it wouldn't. I mean, I don't think it would be that. It's not like, rocket science. It's not rocket science. And I mean, the first six would actually go most of the way to fixing this problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but just to be clear, I mean, again, and, and also, OLC, by the way, has reversed itself on this. So in 1999, OLC concluded that actually you had to be already the vacancy. You had to be first assistant before the vacancy. Um, and then in 2001, they reversed themselves. So you know, I, I don't think this is blatantly illegal, like some of the things the Trump administration does. No, but does. It, it's taking advantage of look. Lots of lawyers often do is find find yeah. words to give in the text, and if it's poorly written, then so listen. Like I mean, this I'm, I'm not going to say that this isn't largely Congress's fault and that Congress shouldn't fix it, but. Right. You know, for the Trump administration to take someone who McConnell hates, right, and install him in a position that really requires Senate confirmation, and for McConnell to do nothing about it. Yeah, is, I know. I mean, it's just like, you know, the next time I hear anything from Mitch McConnell about worrying about the institutional authority of the Senate, I'm going to, you know, bang my head into the wall because this is an affront to the institutional authority of the Senate and you don't care. I'm going to get you a padded hel helmet. That would probably be <laughs> I useful. don't want you to hurt yourself. All right, so that, sure was, that was Trumplandia 1. Trumplandia 2 was this morning when the Office of Special Counsel, not to be confused with the Special Counsel, this is not Mueller. Yeah, this is just an unfortunately similarly named long-standing existing institution within the Justice Department that does what? Um, enforces the Hatch Act. 
Yes, tell our friends about the Hatch Act. Some of our federal listeners will know it very well. So Politicking while in office. Right. So the Hatch Act is actually this, I think, overly complicated series of rules that depending upon exactly what kind of federal employment you have, constrains or indeed in some cases outright prohibits your ability to engage in what the statute calls political activities while you're on the clock. And indeed, depending upon your job, even when you're off the clock, right, that, that the rules differ based upon exactly where in the federal government you are. Um, the Office of the Special Counsel is actually a largely independent office. Um, part of why it's independent, actually the backstory is kind of wacky here, is because um, Congress increased its independence after um, someone named Alex Kaczynski um, was, the, was thought to have abused its position when he was head of the Office of Special Counsel early in the Reagan administration by overly politicizing Hatch Act investigations. Oh, um, I've never heard that story. Yeah, uh, it's not good. Um, anyway, so... The OSC's job is basically to enforce the Hatch Act to issue warnings, or well, to issue opinion letters, to issue advice, and then to issue warnings when it believes that employees across the line. It has no independent authority to remove somebody. It has no authority to yeah. prosecute. It just so is it's like hortatory. Well, yes, and 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 it's meant to be like you know we're the experts, we're neutral, we're not invested. Therefore, right. our advice is what you should follow. Right. Um, OSC has previously warned Kellyanne Conway that many of her public statements are violating the Hatch Act because in her capacity as senior counsel to the president on White House grounds during working hours, she is, you know, hawking for the campaign. Right. Um, and today, um, OSC filed a report where they basically formally recommended that Kellyanne Conway be fired um, for persistent, repeated, and egregious violations of the Hatch Act. Has, do you know, has... OSC ever made a similar recommendation about someone of similar stature? I don't believe so. Uh, I saw an interview where the OSC director said that this recommendation was unprecedented. Um, and he said, but so is the misconduct by Kellyanne wow. Conway. Wow. Well, obviously nothing's going to happen to her, but it's it's a black mark, it's obviously. A, so, but, and I wanted to say one thing. So the White House quickly issued a statement. I want to pull up the statement because the statement is insane. Um, I want to read it. Um, the Office of Special Counsel's unprecedented actions against Kellyanne Conway are deeply flawed and violate her constitutional rights to free speech and due process. Okay, so I have a couple responses to this. First, um, now do Pete Strzok um, and Lisa Page, right, who's private out of business, like off-hours text messages are apparently not protected in your view. Um, but second and more fundamentally, government employees, when they are speaking as employees, when they are on the clock on government property, they are not fully protected by the First Amendment. The Supreme Court has held for decades that, as Justice Holmes put it, um, you have a right to free speech. You do not have a right to be a policeman. Has there been any pressure on that doctrine? Has there been any movement? It's gone the other direction. It's yeah. been, it's been like the, if anything, the Supreme Court in 2007 in a case called Garcetti versus Ceballos um, went even further to limit the First Amendment rights of public employees, qua public employees compared to the status quo. Very interesting. So, you know, the notion that like um, the Hatch Act is somehow violating her free speech rights here. Yeah. They're, they're, the whole point of the Hatch Act is to say you can go home and from your house, right, in your personal capacity, you can speak freely. But when you're speaking as a government employee, there are limits. That's the whole point of the Supreme Court's First Amendment. I'm course. willing to bet that whoever issued that statement that you quoted is not doing it in a spirit of, here's effectively the legal positions I intend but to take. As it's, someone, it's, it's an attempt to sound certain narrative themes in an effort to defang the story. So ring the gong of suppressing the speech of conservatives, I I, I, and maybe that, will, maybe that will tone down the I story. I know why they're doing it, but I still feel obliged to say, like, this is actually constitutionally insane. Because the other argument that's a violation of due process rights, so first of all, um, there, it is true that there are some government employees who have a due process right to their employment because right. they have some kind of tenure. Right. Hello, fellow public employee with tenure. <laughs> um, or some kind of civil service protection created by statute. In those circumstances, yes, the due process yeah. clause is implicated if the government takes away your right. vested interest clearly not, process. Clearly not in her case. She serves at the pleasure of the president. She can yeah. be fired at any time for any reason. And no doubt she will not be. No, I know. But hold on a second. The whole reason why they said they could fire Comey. Right. Like... You're, you're looking for consistency where there's not going to be any. There's going to be relentless something inconsistency. Something is wrong on the internet. Something is wrong on the internet. Somebody do something about that Twitter. So, uh, right. I, I share I share your, your disgust. Uh, it is what it is. And it is a real shame that that is the case. Uh, why don't we, because I know you're pressed for time. Do you want to pivot to some even more controversial activities that occurred involving Frivolity. goals 8 through 13? 
Um, we can do that. Are we, are we out of are we out of substantive stuff? I think that ran the traps. Okay, cool. Wow. Okay, friends. Uh, Women's World Cup is underway. It's it's so much fun to watch. Go Scotland! The U.S. versus Thailand match. Uh, boy, that turned into a serious blowout. That, that got ugly in a hurry. And then it then it lit up the internet with controversy. There's sort of two dimensions. There are those who say that the foot should have come off the gas. That is, you nope. should you should never rack up 13 Wrong. goals to nil. False. Um, and then there's the very different controversy, which says, look, keep scoring goals all you want, but but be workmanlike about it. But well, but at a certain point, stop celebrating with the enthusiasm. Don't rub their face in it as much at the 13th goal. All right, so at the risk of getting myself into trouble, because I know that everyone has strong feelings about this topic, um, I should say first that I've been a huge women's soccer fan for, oh, I don't know, 25 years. That I, like, you know, I made my bones as a sports writer covering the Amherst College women's nice. soccer team. Nice, Excellent job. Um, broke my heart when they lost in the Elite Eight in the 1997 Division III tournament, but say la vie. Um, I have zero problem. I have negative 13 problems, um, <laughs> right, with running up the score. And here's why. Differential? Goal differential. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, as it's long relevant. As, right. I mean, as long as the rule, as long as the, the tiebreaker for group placement depends on goal differential, score 40 goals if you can. Yeah, you, you, got, you have to. You have a competitive reason to do it. So, and I you agree. have Sweden in your group. I mean, Sweden, who knocked you out of, what, the Olympics, right? Um, yeah. You know, what if Sweden beats Thailand? 14 nothing, and you tie... Sweden, yep. right? I mean, like that. Right, you'll feel pretty stupid if you'd laid off. I have absolutely no problem so it's, scoring goals. I agree with it. So I think the only issue here is the question of of proper sportsmanship right. in the context in which right. uh, the game is beyond out of reach. It, it sure keeps scoring, but but how do you handle yourself? Yeah. So I mean, I I realize this is going to cause some ire, and there are folks out there who are saying, "Listen, it's the World Cup, right? It's the thing you dream about your whole career. You're on the you're at the World Cup. You score a goal. Like, how can you not celebrate?" And I understand that position, but first of all, we're not talking about people who were, you know, the bot, the back of the bench, right? People who only play in garbage time scoring goals. Alex Morgan scored five goals, three of them after the 80th minute, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't think this is like a why am I depriving the person who has never scored an international goal yeah, before? Yeah, let them the celebrate. Yeah. Right, but there's something just about like you know, don't rub it. Like, yes, you you should run up the score because the rules reward goal differential, right? But that is the only reason why you should be doing this. And celebrating the fact that you are clearly, you know, that you could play with one arm behind your back and still beat the, the Thai right. team, I think it's just, it's unsporting. And I'm, and I know, you know, there are folks out there who think there's a gender component to this. I don't think it's gendered at all. No, if this, like, I, I think it's ridiculous to suggest that if, if the men, first of all, the men's team would be pretty damn lucky if they could pull off 13. If we could score two <laughs> goals, it would be nice. I mean, the men's, yeah. the U.S. men's team hasn't scored 13 no, goals in like six games. The U.S. men's team is a complete mess. The U.S. women's team is awesome, and we're both fans, so I, I, I reject any idea that what we're saying here, because I share I share your view. I think at a certain point, there's there's an etiquette that's important, and it's, you know, I sit there with, with my daughters watching this, and I tell them, like, if you're ever in that position, I don't, I don't think it'd be proper for you to behave that way. Yeah. I mean, you know, sc- score the goal, right? Grab the ball, give no, it to the ref. Be happy. You don't have to sit there and act right. mad high or five, sad about it. Like, you can, you can be pucks, happy. You but, know, really yeah. good. But like this, this sort of orchestrated, you know, I mean, anyway. I, I, so, yeah. so this. I'm I, with I, you. Hey, you are, I, I'm so pleased you're being a fuddy-duddy etiquette guy like me. I just, I, I feel Steve, so bad. welcome to my world. I, I've been on the wrong side of games like that. I, I can't say I've, I've often been on the right side of games like yeah. that. And, like, yes, I understand I'm not, like, you know, listen, if you want them to stop, sco- stop scoring, play better. Yes, I agree. I have yeah, no that's problem not, with the that's goals. That's not what we're talking right? about. Yeah. But you know what? When you're up by 45 points in the fourth quarter, like, you know, don't after you hit a three-pointer, like, mug for the cameras. Right? I agree. If you're up 15 to nothing in the ninth inning, you know, don't steal third base with one out. Like, yep. I mean, like, you know, yeah. there's, it's, they're just, yeah. Yeah, I agree. We're on the same page. Okay. Turns out we can't debate about that at all. Um, Kevin Durant. Oh man, I'm so I'm really sad about that. So he's out for the year. Uh, will he ever be the same? Yeah, bit, I mean, there's a bit about this. So, so you know, Achilles tears are really complicated. I mean, some people come back from them 100. percent Dominique Wilkins, I think, tore his Achilles and was still Dominique Wilkins when he came back. Some people the, the, Kobe, human, the human highlight reel, right? Uh, and then Kobe Bryant, but Kobe was 34 when he tore his Achilles. He holds Durant right now, not 34. Yeah, yeah. Um, was it 20, 29? Yeah. So I think that somebody. This is really interesting, really, for what it means for his future. Does he? Uh, does he just stay on the Warriors? Uh, I guess. Does he have to re up his contract with them? 
Um, so he could re-up, right? I mean, he could. He could. It's his option. Yeah, right. He has he has the option to re. Or I don't know if it's his option or if the Warriors. It's assuming yeah. the Warriors will offer him. Yeah. But you know, there. I mean, there's this question about whether the Achilles tear changes how some teams look at him as a prospect. Yeah, it's hard to imagine it won't take knock a few dollars off, but I don't think it'll change that much. He's too transformational. It's too likely that given his age, he'd come back with at least several years of pretty similar. I mean, he could have a five. 10% drop-off and still be hugely valuable. So I think you'll still see the uh, the pull for him. But what it does mean is that he's not going to have an immediate transformational right. effect. Right. If the Knicks sign him, they uh, still, no. still got to wait a year. No. Um, you know, so I, that's interesting what it means for him. What about Kawhi? What about, um, you know. Any chance he's going to stay in Toronto? Yes. You think so? Yeah, I mean, if he, if if they, you know, if they somehow pull it out, I mean, if they somehow pull it out, if they, yeah, I don't think if somehow, they, I think if they, they close it out, out, like they if probably they close will. it out tonight, or if they find, or if they, you Go know, like, win in Game Seven. I mean, I feel like you know, this is a love affair, man. It's so. Well, is it? Does does he love any? Does what, he love what, anything? I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you 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 know quite. You know, well, you don't know quite, but but like, I don't know. You, but you, but you I, have, I draw been, a lesson for his. What I've what I've decided is this is a guy who really loves his home yeah. area, as most of us do. Yeah. He wants to be in in Southern California. He'll have that option. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I mean, listen, in Southern California, you're not even the only team in your own arena, right? And in Toronto, you're the only team in the whole country. And I just I wonder if just the the stunning outpouring that we've seen of support for the Raptors during this run might somehow be sort of coaxing him into thinking like this is actually a home. I bet not, because I think he's got he and the people around him. I think have designs on you know what else can he expand his brand into. You can do that the from LeBron, LA, the LeBron factor. vastly better than Toronto to say the least. And uh, the tax factor, although California, I suppose, might go toe to toe with Canada on the tax factor. Um, so we'll, well see. I mean, they'll fi- I mean, I'm sure. Like the well, okay. I don't know. What yeah. do I know? Hey, I, the, I, I, the money's in the shoe contract, anyways. Yes, through a corporation in the Caymans. Right. I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> who knows how that goes? All right. I think we've run out the clock, and you've got to get on to your next thing. So why don't we? Uh, <sighs> I guess are we are we meeting next week? I'd like to. Yeah. Um, predictions for the, the, the game six or game seven, Raptors in six, Raptors in seven. So I predict the Warriors uh, win tonight, and it goes to game seven Ooh. in Toronto, and it's going to be really good. People are acting like the Warriors aren't good without uh, without. No, they're, they're very good without Durant. Durant. The problem is they've, they've a lot of their bigs, right? It's not just Durant. Um, but I think Clay Thompson and Seth Curry, even if those are the horses you got to ride, you got a chance. And I think at home in the last game. Right, the last Oakland, game in Oracle, no matter what. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think they're going to come out. I, I think that uh, Clay Thompson and Seth Curry are both players that uh, respond with pride when they're when they're challenged. I think this is a challenge. I, I mean, I'm rooting for the Warriors. I was rooting for the Warriors at the beginning of the series. I'm, I, I, I was definitely rooting for the Warriors when the Raptors fans cheered Durant's injury. Ooh, like, yeah. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm all Ooh, in. On what, the what a blow to the to the love affair right, others the, were having with like, <laughs> oh. You know the sweet, nice Canadians. <laughs> the sweet, nice Canadians, and like, they're what? and they're like boo. And and the worst part was if you actually watch the video, right? They're they're cheering right when he gets hurt, and then when he gets up and is hobbling, the cheer gets louder. Yeah, like that's the worst. Like it's like oh my god, he's really hurt. Yeah, it's yeah. like the that's guys. the first rule of being a fan of like things you don't do before. Don't. Like don't throw things on the floor. Yeah. Is you don't cheer injuries. It could be a. Hey, it could be in fairness, some of those people that were cheering more loudly were like, hey, he's moving. Yeah, he's limping. But it could be that some of them actually. We're misinterpreting. I don't think what it's given that Kyle Lowry is standing there being like, "No, stop!" I yeah. don't actually think that's yeah, what's yeah, going yeah. on. No, I'm trying trying to put the best face on it. Oh, are, are you a? Are you? <laughs> Come on, y'all Spurs! All right, um, I think that about wraps it up. He's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, our hiatus, I think, is over. I think we're going to try to be back on our regular weekly schedule. Yes, although for... I will be the, away the week after that. So next week we got a regular schedule. It's all his fault. Yeah, exactly. Blame Bobby. Blame Summer. He doesn't even know who Ron Swanson Blame is. Blame the academics. <laughs> it's Ron Swanson. You realize that you're gonna. You realize that 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 the the Twitterati are gonna come at you for this one. Come on, Ron Swanson. Br- at me. Br- bring it on. <laughs> right, your mentions are gonna blow up. Anyway, um, it's a pretty crazy time we're living, everybody. So stay safe out there. Adios.